Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Credit Union's Coffee and Conversation. I am Patty Corkery, and thank you so much for joining. Today's episode is a special one because it is the first time I have the opportunity to sit down with one of our credit union CUSOs, Credit Union Service Organization. I was really thrilled to have the opportunity to sit down with Bill Beardsley, the president and CEO of Michigan Business Connection. You're going to learn a lot about Bill during this recording and also hear more about what Michigan Business Connection does in supporting credit unions in our state in the commercial lending space. I have no doubt that you are really going to enjoy this conversation, and I hope you do as much as I did. And thanks so much, Bill, for joining me. It was a really great time, and you're a really fascinating guy to sit down and talk to. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Bill Beardsley. Well, hi, Bill Beardsley. Thank you for joining me on Credit Union's Coffee and Conversation. It's great to have you. Thank you, Patty. Great to be here. Yeah, I think as I mentioned, um, I'm really excited to have you on as my uh, first CUSO. So, so far, I've sat down with credit union leaders around the state, um, our Young Professional of the Year. I actually met with our Attorney General a couple of weeks ago, um, but you are the first leader of a CUSO, and I'm really excited to hear from you and talk about CUSOs and, you know, just what an amazing component of our Michigan Credit Union um, family um, CUSOs are, and to highlight MBC and you, um, it, it's really great that you're here, and I appreciate you agreeing to do this. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so before we dig into MBC, Michigan Business Connection Bill, um, I'd like to start out asking folks to just tell, tell us your story. Sure, that's probably the hardest question that <laughs> I'll face on this call. My story, I'm a lifelong Michigan resident. Uh, married 34 years, four kids, three grandkids, graduated from Michigan State, uh, 19 years in banking before I made it and was liberated uh, to the credit union side of it, 18 years in the CUSO. And in that time, a lot of community involvement that I've been uh, with has been really gratifying and satisfying for me. But um, uh, a career uh, banker, uh, both on the bank side and the credit union side, has been really fun and, 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 and really a great way to, to invest in the community with time and resources and, and help a lot of people. Absolutely. Well, that's great, Bill. Well, that's awesome. I didn't realize you were here in Michigan, lifelong Michigander. It's been about a year and a half uh, working uh, in Toledo, but living in Michigan. Okay. And, uh, but have always been in Michigan. All right, great. Well, so I looked on the website at, at Michigan Business Connection and it started in 2004. So were you there at the beginning? Yes. Uh, okay. As I said, I was, I was liberated from uh, a bank going through a reorganization as any banker that would uh, have a similar story could tell you that that happens quite frequently when banks go through reorganizations um, or mergers or whatever. And I just got so lucky to get a call from Mark Angott, who many, many people know. And his comment to me was, I've got this group of credit unions forming a company to handle commercial lending. Do you know anybody that might be interested? (laughs) And I just knew right then that that was the opportunity for me. And and it couldn't have turned out any better over these 18 years. 
Yeah, I love stories like that. Just one call can just completely change your life. One person thinking of you to make that call. And, you know, who knows where you'd be if that call never happened? You know, you don't know what you'd be doing. That's right. Um, Well, so we're talking a lot about Michigan Business Connection. For those listening that if they live under a rock and haven't heard of MBC, (laughs) why don't you explain for our listeners um, what Michigan Business Connection is and, um, and how it fits into our industry here in Michigan? You know, you say that about living under a rock, and, and, and yet there are, you know, hundreds of credit unions in Michigan, 200-something, I think. Right. And I am actually uh, somewhat surprised at how frequently, um, particularly credit unions that are, say, $150 million and less, um, are hearing about CUSOs in the commercial lending space for the first time. So it it is interesting that uh, while CUSOs, I think, are part of the vocabulary, there's really not that many commercial lending CUSOs, and that's what we do. Obviously, we help uh, a small number of credit unions, uh, about 25. We keep that number small because we want to serve them more deeply than uh, have a, a large number of credit unions where you would be more uh, wide of service, but not as deep of service. So we can help a credit union with the full gamut of commercial lending. And that is from the very early days of sourcing of a new member opportunity to the absolute end of collections if something wrong goes on with the borrower. So it's everything in between. A lot of QSOs um, focus on sort of the in the middle parts of the process, underwriting, documentation, and servicing. And we add to both ends of that with uh, sourcing and origination on the front end and really monitoring and collections on the back end. And uh, there's there's only about 20 commercial lending QSOs uh, in the country. There are hundreds and hundreds of QSOs uh, but only about 20 that focus on commercial loan support. And ACUSO is really any company that has either in whole or in part credit union ownership. So there are just dozens of examples of CUSOs from commercial lenders, mortgage lenders, car loan lenders, uh, data analytics, compliance, technology, et cetera. And Michigan has quite a few really noteworthy uh, QSOs uh, to its to its credit. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't not mention um, CU Solutions Group, our own QSO, where MCWell owns 65% of it and the phenomenal things that they do um, in Michigan and nationally. So um, it's really exciting. You know, I've worked with different QSOs throughout my career, and it's just another great example of credit unions collaborating and coming together. And that's what's so fun about it. I mean, you have, you know, there's always some friendly competition (laughs) between credit unions and um, and where people are going to build branches and who's going to merge with who. And QSOs are really um, credit unions coming together on the same team and um, participating in loans and getting excited about the different projects um, that come come to be with commercial lending. And I know you mentioned smaller asset credit unions. And, and looking at your website, I saw that you are offering you know small credit union participation programs. Um, how's that going? Um, are you getting some interest in some of, from some of our smaller credit unions? Yes, and and that is something we launched earlier this year, really. And 
Um, it's a way, I mean, it really started because in, in most, most people listening to this know of CU Answers. Right. Uh, based in Grand Rapids, it, it's a, a really great core that's very popular. And uh, CU Answers and some of their related companies started what they called the QSO Challenge. And NUQSO, the, the National Trade Association for QSOs, uh, picked up on the QSO Challenge. I'm on the board of NUQSO. So as I began to learn of uh, the QSO Challenge, I thought, how can I participate in this in some way? And one, um, the QSO Challenge has five basic commitments that um, uh, were inspiring the QSO community to help um, to accomplish. One might be, as an example, helping form de novo QSOs, yes. as an example. But another is in uh, helping smaller credit unions compete and survive because of the number that are being merged out of existence every day. And so I thought about how can we do something more meaningful for smaller companies who generally speaking have higher capital ratios, higher net worths, stronger liquidity, but not as strong loan demand. And so we launched a small credit union participation program where for absolutely no ongoing monthly cost, they get the opportunity to buy into small increments of participation loans. And it is uh, really a starter program to help them put some of their excess liquidity to work. And it is just, um, and and it is going very well. So we've got uh, credit unions from $20 million to $150 million on the program. And it's a way for them to build some acumen with commercial lending so that if they do have a member come in, they don't have to have a full commercial loan program. We're going to support that on the back end. The number of those loans that come in is not a meaningful number to us, but it sure makes it feel meaningful to the credit union who doesn't have to say no to that member. And we're providing the talent on the back end uh, to process those. But the real trick there the real goal of the program is to help credit unions that are struggling to build net interest uh, income because of volume issues. And obviously yields are down significantly in this environment to put some money to work for what might be a short period of time, two, three, four, five years, maybe margins change, maybe they earn their way out of their challenges, but they've been able to park some money into some MBL participations in the meantime and prop up some of that earning. Absolutely. Well, that's, I was so excited to see that program um, and, and talk to you about it um, just because, you know, we're always looking for ways to try and support smaller credit unions and without a QSO, you know, like NBC, I mean, they just wouldn't be able to do commercial lending. I mean, there's an expertise that's involved that, you know, to hire even somebody part-time to do it, it it's just uh, too big of a hurdle. So I think that's, I'm excited to hear more about that and I'll, I'll keep um, connecting with you to see, um, you know, maybe we can connect at the, at one of our league conferences and really get some credit unions together to talk more about that program and make sure that our smaller credit unions are aware of it. Because, you know, what we're hearing from large and small is they have money to lend and they want to lend it. And uh, it just, it's it's a win-win looking at that. So Bill, how has COVID um, impacted commercial lending? These past two years have been um, the most challenging 
and rewarding and impactful years of any of my entire career. And, and it really started, you know, if you really go to the origins of the pandemic in March of 2020 and saw what happened to interest rates where the Fed reduced rates and put in an immediate flood of borrowers looking to refinance their loans. But within days, that turned into the shutdown orders, which produced a flood of borrowers looking for relief on their loans. Some of the same ones that said, I'm so good, (laughs) give me a lower interest rate, were then coming in and saying, I need some, some payment help. And so, um, and of course we went remote during that time period. We'd, right. we'd had a pandemic policy for 10 years and we were able to be remote within 24 hours. And, awesome. and everybody um, uh, was rolling up their sleeves to help these borrowers with deferments. Then of course, weeks later, the SBA launched the PPP program, yeah. which was of course, a significant challenge and opportunity for impact. And we had people staying up into the wee hours of the night processing these SBA loans. And we're still obviously working through the tail end of that through the forgiveness process. Uh, Round one is almost over, round two is just beginning. And so that pressure has just been uh, significant. But all the while you had a lot of banks that really shifted gears into PPP and took their lenders off the street which allowed us to compete for some borrowers, uh, us meaning the credit unions and and NBC to compete for some borrowers that perhaps we wouldn't have been front row with before. So while we've got all this PPP and deferral stuff going on, we've got record loan volumes as well. And then the, the fourth element of this, if you will, is the pressure it puts on certain industries in COVID, hospitality, restaurants, food service, uh, family entertainment, some of these things that just were really hurt more than others. And so, it, you know, our job is to help credit unions manage risk too. So we have an entire portfolio management team that really had to double up efforts helping those borrowers that were most impacted. So it's been a tremendous challenge uh, all the while, the most impactful time that, that I and the team could ever have and, and the credit unions uh, to be able to see the impact of helping those members with PPP loans or deferrals or new projects. It's been uh, really, really amazing to see everybody. Yeah, that's well, and we appreciate right off the bat you coming to help and support us and our members and our conversations surrounding PPP. And it just, time is so weird with COVID. I mean, it just seems so long ago that we were, you know, even learning what these PPP loans were and working with different folks to make sure everyone understood how, how to run with it. And yeah, it was just a crazy time. Agreed. And so what about now, though, when I think about commercial lending projects and I think about the crisis we're having with staffing shortage and not to mention, you know, every week, at least we're all talking about the cost of goods, you know, the cost of drywall, the cost of materials. You know, I had somebody come and fix my garbage disposal and they were telling me this plumber about how piping has tripled. And I mean, how is that impacting the projects that you guys have going on with, with your borrowers and, and how's that all going? <laughs> you, know, you know, it's really insightful question, Patty. And, and we have about a hundred million dollars under construction right yeah. now. And so when the supply chain disruptions were happening and uh, 
subcontractors are asking their contractors for upfront deposits, yeah. you know, to secure their availability and, and really put pressure on the owners of these projects and the contractors themselves to come to the table with more equity. So we had to do sort of a re-underwrite of risk mm -hmm. for the active portfolio to make sure that the, the owners of the project had enough liquidity to invest into those deposits um, in a way that they did not anticipate. And in some instances, uh, depending on what the circumstances were, maybe it's shipments coming from China and they're going to get here three months later and that's gonna put mm -hmm. everything behind. And there were some challenges we needed to work through very much on a loan by loan basis. But for the most part, I think it's all part of the overall underwriting. You're assessing the financial health of the, the project developer. You're assessing the financial health, uh, health of the contractor for mm -hmm. unexpected difficulties and uh, the portfolio and the construction portion of the portfolio has performed really, really well. And, and fortunately, the economy. Yeah. So if you're building, say, apartment community, you've got people ready to fill that up as soon as you you know are finished with it. So fortunately, while you might have had some disruption from a timing or budget standpoint, the market has supported it well on the back end because you know rents are higher and and customers, meaning tenants, are are plentiful. So it's yeah. it's turned out pretty well. Absolutely, especially in that residential space, like you mentioned. I mean, people can't find homes, so they have to live somewhere. And I had a friend that was looking for an apartment just in the Royal Oak area, and it's like it's so hard. You're on a wait list, and the rent is like at a premium. Um, so I can only imagine there. What about the issue? And I know we all talked about this over the last year, as COVID, you know, has obviously been up and down in terms of numbers, um, but you know, this fluctuation we have with the remote work and companies deciding to go and stay remote, you know, um, we've all been kind of wondering what's going to happen to the landlords, the office space, and, and what, what are your, what is your, you know, I'm sure your fingers on the pulse of that. Um, what are you seeing there? You know, what's funny about that is um, everybody acknowledges they don't really know what's going to happen. Yeah. There's been so many theories about uh, where this would hurt the most. Is it the urban office? Uh, yeah. Will the suburban office actually be better because of this? Um, and uh, so at this point, everyone's taking a little bit of a cautious approach with office specifically, but your well-positioned, predominantly suburban office locations, um, I think are going to be just fine. Your yeah. larger urban office locations are going to be as good as their marketing successes of getting the right tenants in there to fill them. Um, as far as remote work goes, we're still probably only one third back in the office. Yeah. And, and that is a discretion that I gave to our managers that said, uh, um, bring back the people you believe need to be there. So that could be a function of how that individual works best. Maybe they don't have the best environment at home uh, for their duties. Maybe they work better in a team. Um, so we're still very much, we haven't really changed that. It's it's going to be that way until we can say this thing is, is behind us. Yeah. But at that point, you know, we know it's going to be different. We were predominantly 
I won't say we're 100% in office before because we've had people who have moved away from Michigan but kept their jobs with NBC. And it's been right. really great to be able to provide them that capability. So we've had some remote work before, but predominantly we're in office. And I have some peers and colleagues who are moving to a remote, an entirely remote QSO environment where they won't have a, a headquarters office for their primarily for most of their personnel. Yeah. So those are two extremes. You're either all in the office or all remote. We're, gonna, we're not going to be either. I'm sure of that. We'll be something in between and, and we'll do what makes sense for, um, for predominantly our ability to do our job as well as we need to do it for the credit unions and their members. And, and we recognize the risk of that is, you know, some people are making decisions that they only want to work from home now. And yeah. um, that may or may not be an option that that they get from NBC, and and they may end up working with one of my colleagues from Lord knows where, uh, <laughs> right. because they're well trained and 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 I do have peers that are offering full remote work, um, but uh, yeah. I think many people that we work with enjoy the camaraderie of team and, yeah. and the collaboration that comes from it, and and the development, particularly if you're in the first half of your career, first third of your career, the development that comes from being with other people and listening to more senior people is not something you can get from a Zoom call. Nope. So it's just really, really important that they see their own long-term development in that way, or, or they may be stunted or, or simply dissatisfied with, with the job because they don't really have a bigger picture to see. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm on board with you there. And and then part of me thinks too about the industry that we support. I mean, none of our credit unions are 100% remote. I mean, they certainly have some positions that can work from home or are working in other states even, um, but they're, they're, they're there. <laughs> and so as their association, I kind of feel the same way. We've definitely gone away from the five day a week in the office model. But I just think the best approach, you know, for our group is definitely more of a hybrid. Um, I wrote an article for CU Insight about this very topic. I know so many people are opining on it, but, you know, you hear from folks to say, well, I can do my job fine at home. I've been super productive. I get everything done. You know, why, why do I have to come in? And my question kind of back to that is, is that all we want from an employee is productivity, you know, or isn't there something else we get from a, an employee, which is ideas and training and like you said, work friends and technology just hasn't been able to replace that. And we were just in our office yesterday in Lansing for a full day meeting and I was just on cloud nine driving home. And when I got home, just the energy um, and the excitement, we don't have to do that every day. Um, my team's like, thank God, <laughs> but, you know, cause it was a full day of meetings, but it was so great to just laugh and to talk to people in the kitchen and, you know, ask those personal questions that you don't often get to in zoom. And I just really think that it's going to be fascinating to see what comes of it down the road. Um, when we really start to look back and see how cultures have changed and what impact, you know, you know, maybe it'll be positive, a, a company that goes hundred percent remote, I don't know. I'm just, um, I'm kind of like you on that. I think a, a, a mixture is best. And, and I love the flexibility that our team can have people with smaller families and kids and, you know, um, being home more, I, that's, that's definitely a, a win for them, but then getting them to come in every so often, I think is just a win for everybody. 
Absolutely. Uh, last week was NOCUSO, the National Trade yeah. Association for CUSO's uh, annual conference. It had been moved from the spring to November because of COVID. Uh, we didn't have one in 2020. So this is the first one in almost two years. It had record attendance. Yeah. And it was really exciting to really be able to be feeling like you were back uh, in a personal, in-person kind of uh, opportunity. And um, to look at how the financial landscape has changed over the last year and a half, while we had um, uh, sort of a, a coordinated second event around fintech companies as part of the NACUSO conference sort of aligned with it. And there were hundreds of people that wanted to attend the fintech piece as well, uh, in addition to almost 500 people that were attending the, the NACUSO conference. So really great to see the in-person stuff starting to happen again. Absolutely. I looked at the agenda for NACUSO and it's, I think, I mean, it's, it's certainly of interest to everyone in the credit union space. So do you get folks that attend outside of people that are working for CUSO? You probably get credit union CEOs. And I mean, the topics there are just so relevant, you know, whether you put it in a CUSO format or not. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. just really a lot of hot topics. Yeah, there are more credit union uh, CEOs and uh, board members yeah. and other, other personnel or executives that attend that conference than actual CUSO uh, yeah. people in terms of numbers, uh, because CUSOs don't exist without credit unions. Sure, yeah. So it's the credit unions typically that have the, the, the desire for collaboration and the desire to work with other credit unions in the formation of a CUSO. So they're the real champions of the CUSO movement. Um, sure. Our job is to, to work for them and make them successful uh, and uh, that's why you get that kind of, uh, I think, level of participation with with NUCUSO by credit union people. You look at NUCUSO board, it, I didn't do the numbers, but I think there's more credit union people on the NUCUSO board than there actually are CUSO people. Right. But I think they wear two hats and they are proud of their CUSO hat just as sure. much as their credit union hat. Absolutely. And um, yeah, well, I'm glad it was a success because we're seeing the same thing. People want to get back together in person. Um, they're for sure ready for it. And um, it looked like it was a great agenda. I might have to check it out. I see next spring it's in Disney World. So it looks like <laughs> you guys, you know, have good locations and awesome topics. So um, it's really cool, especially in that fintech space and, you know, all the people talking about cryptocurrency and, and just there's so many really cool topics. Um, and of course, you know, the one we were just talking about is the impact of COVID, remote work and all of that. It's what I found over the last two years is how much credit unions just love to come to together and hear what everybody else is doing. You know, we have it kind of easy at the league. We kind of just create the space for them to all talk to one another. And especially dealing with, you know, something so novel um, as coronavirus, um, it was really great to just hear them want to see what everybody else is doing, you know, whether finding PPE or certainly with the, the PPP program. I mean, you saw that on our calls. They're just really connecting and asking questions. And when we can get to them together in person, at conferences to do that. Um, that's where the real magic happens and it, it's a good time. Um, 
So just in general, um, Bill, I know when we were talking prior to our call, um, we were talking about some issues that you see impacting CUSOs um, generally. And I know you mentioned during our discussion, you know, your concern about um, NCUA oversight. Um, do you want to elaborate on that and, and let us know what you're thinking there? Yeah, being a board member of NCUSO, I have to articulate it in terms of the broader picture. And there yeah. is a, a broader concern about um NCUA's desire to have actual governing oversight of CUSOs. Now, I, I qualify that concern a little bit because um, I welcome my interactions with NCUA. Yeah. And in fact, they're coming into MBC in a couple months, first time I've seen them in 10 or 11 years. And we learn a lot from dialoguing with NCUA particularly the regional lending specialists right because they've come a super long way over you know the last 10 years in terms of their own capability um, so we get best practices from them just like we would an auditor uh, and so I look forward to it but the broader picture is today uh, the NCUA has uh, governance you know sort of oversight, of the charters that it issues and the uh, state charter credit unions as well through the insurance program. Right. And so they, and, and every one of those being, you know, every CUSO has one of those types of credit unions or more right. as owners. And as a result, the NCOA certainly has access to whatever information they need from a CUSO. And if they want to pressure um, our owners, the credit union owners, to fix something at NBC, that you better well believe that they can do that. So if sure. they if they come in, see something they don't like, they don't need actual oversight. Uh, they don't need to be able to tell us what to fix. They can certainly just tell our owners what concerns they have and our owners are gonna tell us what to fix. But there's a cost burden to extending that governance directly into uh, third parties like QSOs, and it wouldn't stop with QSOs. It could go, you know, all the way down to the lawn service company that a credit union uses. And, you right. know, but I think where this will end up, and I'm not on the, you know, this portion of the no QSO uh, team, but I think where it'll end up is where the real risk and concern is, and that is cybersecurity. Sure. If a credit union is using a, a QSO or is investing in a QSO, the NCOA has every right to be concerned about how secure the information is that is inside that QSO. And I think ultimately the NCOA will probably figure out a way to get some either oversight or some stronger um, uh, provisions in place to monitor that cybersecurity risk without taking the broader brush approach to having direct uh, governance responsibility or over oversight for every single QSO, many of which are probably too small or limited to ever be too worried about when it comes to share insurance fund, which sure. is, of course, NCOA's real number one concern. 
Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting just over the years, you know, working with credit unions as they're, you know, responding to NCUA exams, um, you know, I mean, for years, you know, the NCUA examiner's guidance, you know, talks about certain contractual provisions that need to exist when a credit union contracts with a third party vendor. And they've been all over, you know, data security for a while now. That's not something new. And, you know, a lot of that can really be controlled at the contractual level, you know, um, as to who bears responsibility in the event something happens. But it's interesting. And, um, you know, we, of course, on our advocacy arm, you know, talk to, you know, the NCUA board and staff um, on a regular basis. So I'll make sure that you're invited to those discussions. And, you know, we're happy to have you join us um, in those discussions and and raise this as an issue and talk it through because it's certainly relevant um, to a lot of folks here in Michigan. Absolutely. All right, Bill. Well, we're winding things down and I did give you a warning that I ask all of the guests um, the same five questions. So <laughs> we'll go ahead and get to those. Unless before we do, Bill, if there's anything we didn't cover that you wanted to chat about. And uh, hey, how many employees does NBC have? I neglected to ask. We have 47 employees and six openings. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, yep. Um, that's <laughs> something we're hearing around the state for sure. So um, crazy times right now. Um, anything else you wanted to dig into before we wrap up? I think only to say thanks for the invitation and it's great to partner with, uh, the league and, and historically CU solutions group as well. And, um, it's really been a great, uh, partnership. You guys do a great job. Oh, thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. Um, right back at you. Okay. So let's get into these fun questions. So Bill, what is on your nightstand at home? So there is one book on my nightstand. It's called Extreme Ownership. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it or read it, but it's no. written by two Navy SEALs mm. and it applies sort of what they are taught uh, in the SEAL program and what they lived in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, and they now provide uh, that kind of training to business and to industry. Nice. Uh, and uh, the concept with the book is not very complicated. Uh, it's pretty simple, but it's laid out in such a way that it's just so powerful and impactful. So I am probably 90% through it, so I'm almost done. But um, it's not a one-time read. You're going to read it again because it's just pretty, first of all, listening to the stories of these guys is just yeah. super cool. Uh, but applying that to business yeah. And um, applying it to leadership, and it, it's really important stuff. Taking ownership, it's called extreme ownership, but it's basically taking ownership, ultimate ownership of things that don't go right. Yeah. And um, whether it was your fault or not, you have to take ownership of it if it's beneath you. And I think it's a powerful message. Yeah, absolutely. I'll have to check that out. And it's so awesome that, you know, somebody that's been in the industry as long as you have and, and, you know, continuing to learn, you know, I mean, it, and these, and these different resources that we have out there, um, you're, you're never, you know, you're always learning. And I think that's a sign of a great leader too, is to just recognize that I still have stuff to learn. And, and that's, that, that's great. Um, and I wonder if, I know I've heard a Navy SEAL in the leadership space come out and talk 
Um, and I wonder if he's one of the guys that was involved in this book, because uh, I know that some of them have, you know, so many skills that you get in those extreme type of situations. It's just such a great, you know, a starting point to talk about leadership and, and your team and things like that. So I'll have to see if it's the same guy, but all right, extreme ownership. I'll have to check it out. Um, so what is something that people get wrong about you, Bill? I think, I think they would get wrong what I look like on the weekend, I think <laughs> yeah. is what they would get wrong. Um, Cause it's nothing like what I look like Monday through Friday, but a lot of it, it has to do with, I have such a varied collection of activities when I'm not thinking about work and it's, it's stuff you wouldn't expect. I might be on a farm tractor or, a, or on a Harley or, or on a boat or doing a do it yourself and being totally filthy and sweaty. And um, so it's really about what I'm up to on the weekend, I think is probably what is most difficult for people to envision. <laughs> nice. Well, if you go to your website, I know the picture of your team, you guys are out all in harnesses doing some like <laughs> stuff outside. Yeah. Yeah. Have, yeah. Once a year, we have a team appreciation week. We try to do something super cool and fun and sometimes things that scare you. And uh, that ropes course, even though you were totally secure, boy, that really messes with you when you're up that high and yeah. just cabled in. Yeah, there's something about that. My daughter's trying to get me to do more things outside of my comfort zone. And she has started jumping out of airplanes. So like to get certified as a skydiver and I'm like, okay, I don't know if I'm quite there, but I might be able to do a rope course if I'm harnessed in pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So if you could have coffee with anyone, who would it be and why? You know, I knew you were going to ask that. And I <laughs> always thought of this, you know, in the traditional sense, Abraham Lincoln, blah, blah, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. But as I really thought about it, never really thought about it before. But as I thought about it, I, I came up with a different approach. And and who I'd want to meet is my great, great, great grandfather. Oh. And his name was Elijah Beardsley. At 14 years old, he was in the Boston Tea Party. No way. At 16 years old as a private working under his dad as captain, he was in the Revolutionary War. He wow was at Valley Forge. Uh, he went on to have 14 kids oh and gosh. become a farmer and an innkeeper in Ohio. And one of his kids uh, moved to Indiana and, and traded with the chief of the Potawatomi to acquire land and, and start what is now Elkhart, Indiana. Wow. And, and so I have this, I mean, it, you really think about connecting with an ancestor and you know, who he was, whether it was as a, you know, 14-year-old, 16-year-old, or as an, a, a father of 14. Yeah. You know, it just would take you into places that would be so meaningful that yeah. I, I would love to have that opportunity. Absolutely. And it's so cool that you know that about your family. I mean, I you know, to have done the research and found out the connection there. How fascinating is that? Very yeah, I, cool. Very, very fun. Yeah, exactly. So how many greats was that? That would be how many? Great, greats? great, great. Yeah, great great, 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 great. Okay. Well, great, 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 Elijah. Very cool. Um, okay. So tell us about a bucket list travel destination. So 
my dad was a navigator in World War II on B-24s. And uh, his plane crash landed on the far most remote island of the Aleutian Islands of Alaska. Okay. And that plane is still there. And it has become a revered sort of protected national park, if you will, that has this plane on it. So if you ever want to look it up, it's Kiska is the is the island. And my kids, I, I always knew the story. And I have a lot of my dad's long since passed, but I have a lot of his war diaries and correspondence. And I had always known the story, but I didn't know how public the story was. And then my kids started actually looking it up, found some videos and found um, some documentation that showed, yes, this was the plane that he was on because he was listed as navigator. And that just is a one of a time, one of a kind bucket list kind of destination that would be pretty cool, pretty hard to get to. Yeah. But pretty cool. They, they crash landed because of uh, bad weather and, um, Everybody survived. That's so amazing. That's, that's good news. They were rescued some days later, but wow. it was sort your, of fun. Your dad, was he flying the plane or just on the nope. plane? He was navigator. Navigator. He was navigator. So how do you spell that island? Is it K-I-S-K-A? Yes. Okay. Oh, cool. I'll have to Google that. Wow, Bill, you have a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. We could go on and on. <laughs> All right. But I'm going to end this with this last question. So what is um, one trader quality that every leader should strive for? Well, you already touched on it. And that is sort of a willingness to keep learning. And, and for me, what it means is being curious. So when you're presented with something, you need to really think about it and think about why or what or you know, if you read, if you read a story and there's this word you don't understand, you don't skip it. You actually go look it up and say, okay, now I get it. But for me, when I, when I think about leadership, it's, it's getting out of your own lane, getting out of your own job, moving your eyeballs to the future and the bigger picture. And the best way to do that is to be curious about the things you don't know so that you can begin to develop new skills and appreciation. So I see that uh, being so important and yet so challenging for people to have the time to really do that and to be um, willing and courageous enough perhaps to go to places that they're uncomfortable because they don't understand it. But, uh, but, but that's what I hope for. And, and when I started my career, it just seemed like we all had a lot more permission to make mistakes. Yeah. And so um, I encourage that if they're good faith mistakes, but a lot of people just aren't that comfortable with it. And, and I think curiosity will help people be a little more comfortable with doing things they're not that you know, familiar with. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's a great point. So that's an awesome answer. All right, Bill. Well, I'm not going to keep you any longer. Um, I know you had a lot of meetings and things rolling on today and you're having a a vigorous racquetball game (laughs) later this (laughs) evening. So good luck with that. And thank you. um, Thanks so much, Bill, for joining me. I learned a lot about you and um, I knew you're a great guy, but now I've learned you're a really interesting guy as well. 
Well, thank you, Patty. It's a pleasure <laughs> being here. All right. Thanks, Phil. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bill Beardsley. That's a wrap on our sit down. It was great to talk to Bill and get to know so much more about him, not only his commitment um, to Michigan Business Connection and CUSOs in general in our state, as well as nationally uh, with his role at NACUSO, um, but really great to hear all of the personal side stories as well. He's a fascinating guy. I was especially excited to talk to Bill about the small credit union participation program that MBC launched this year, giving our smaller credit unions the opportunity to get involved in commercial lending. I think that's so exciting and I will be for sure following up with Bill to see how that is going. Um, I hope you all learned something new um, about our CUSO industry here in Michigan, about MBC, as well as some of the things that Bill talked about being a leader in our industry for as long as he has. Um, He really has a lot of great nuggets for us to think about, um, especially just focusing on being, um, learning something new, taking on something unfamiliar as a leader um, in the you know, just being curious. I thought that was such great insight and a wonderful trader quality um, for our leaders to have. I did have to say, Bill followed up with me after our sit down to let me know that he had the island mixed up in Alaska. That cool story he shared about his dad uh, from the war. He actually meant to talk about Atka Island, which is A-T-K-A. So if you wanted to look that up, it's Atka, not Kiska. So I just think that's such a fascinating story and and to have um, such a great destination in mind. I hope Bill makes it out there someday for sure. Okay, so that is a wrap on our Credit Union Coffee and Conversation new content for 2021. We are going to pause for the holidays and come back in January with some new conversation, but in the month of December, we are going to be sharing some of our special episodes that you might not have heard that have come out along the way. So it'll give you an opportunity to check those out. And we look forward to sitting down with some new um, credit union folks in the new year. So this is my opportunity to wish you all a wonderful Thanksgiving and an awesome holiday season and for sure a very, very happy new year. I look forward to sitting down and talking to you in 2022. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you soon.